question show time. Your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are, anywhere on my channel, question popped in your brain, write it down in the comments. I will gather a bunch of them up and I will answer them here. And did you know that I do another separate question show just for the people who subscribe to the newsletter? It's a secret, it's only shared with them. So if you wanna have more question show, gotta sign up to the newsletter. Go to universetoday.com newsletter and sign up and then ask your question. And I have less people asking me questions there, so uh, better chance your question's gonna make it into this. All right, let's get on with the questions. Gene Stealer UK. The existence of Planet Nine has been hinted at by noticing the strange orbits of objects in the Kuiper Belt. Can't we run those backwards to work out when they could have shifted to their current orbit? Can we do this with all of them and start to guess where Planet Nine would have had to have been then and then determine where it is now? If you had perfect information about how the orbits worked and how they all interacted, you could. But the problem is, is that orbital mechanics, the way planets and stuff interact with each other, there's too much chaos in the system. And so you actually can't predict things too far in advance and calculate it too far back. This is why astronomers don't know exactly when an asteroid, for example, is going to strike the Earth. They know with a certain amount of uh, with a window and say, well, when the asteroid passes the Earth, it's going to probably get close to the Earth in 30, you know, 37 years. And when it does, uh, maybe there's a 10% chance that it's going to hit the Earth. Those are the kinds of probabilities that, that astronomers have to work with. And as you go further and further back in time, the probabilities widen and widen and widen until eventually you have no real numbers, you just have probabilities that overlap. So they just, they can only go so far back and they can only go so far into the future. And this is why you just can't figure out where Planet Nine was by, you know, looking back millions or, or billions of years, tracking all the orbits and trying to calculate its exact point. But astronomers do use sort of, there are resonances that go on with the various objects in the solar system and they can sort of on a regular basis kick each other or lock into various orbital resonances. And so, you know, this is the kind of method that the folks who think that Planet Nine is out there is they think that, you know, they can see where the objects are in its, their various orbits and they've calculated that something had to have disrupted those orbits to get these objects into their current locations. And that something has to be Planet Nine. But where is it in its orbit around the solar system? They don't know. It could be at any point in its orbit. And it could be bigger and farther, or it could be smaller and closer. So it's still a lot of work. It's gonna take something like the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which just scans the whole sky at a really high resolution to find anything that's moving. That's gonna be the machine that's going to find it. And it's gonna come online in just a couple of years from now. So I think we're gonna find Planet Nine and probably other objects like that within the next decade. Danioid81. Hey Fraser, my question is, why hasn't anyone used parachutes to recover used boosters in the way that the Apollo capsules were recovered? Are they just too heavy? Parachutes worked well for the Apollo capsule because it's like one small spacecraft, just big enough to fit three people inside and you can have some parachutes. But a booster, as you said, is very large. It has a very weird shape that isn't very aerodynamic. And so there's a bunch of problems in using a parachute. The one is you need a gigantic parachute to be able to bring the booster back to Earth. And so you would need to have, um, you know, to carry that weight of that parachute up to space with you. And that would take away from the amount of fuel that you could use. The second problem is there's really no control. The, Booster is going to come back down and then land wherever it's going to land in the water on the land. 
you have rough control over, but you really can't exactly control it. And then the other problem is it's going to hit the water and then the seawater is going to get into it and it's going to start to corrode it. So what SpaceX has done is they have really just leapt right to the best solution, which is you have the booster fire its rockets, slow itself on its trajectory, turn itself around, come back, land either close to the launch pad or on the drone ship and they bring it back in, they refuel it and then they launch it again. It's there's no need for parachutes anymore. Now, there is an idea that's going to sort of use parachutes, and this is what United Launch Alliance is planning as their next version of their rocket. It's called the Vulcan. And what the Vulcan is going to do, it's going to have this booster, it's going to have these three side rocket engines that are attached to it. And as the once the rocket goes up and it's achieved its velocity, the these engines will separate and they'll use parachutes to slow their descent. And then here's the crazy part, a helicopter will catch them as they're descending to Earth and then bring them back to the facility so that they can refurbish them and put them on another rocket. So it's more complicated than the SpaceX solution, but it's less waste than just having your entire booster just go into the ocean. So it's, uh, it's the sort of halfway in between. But SpaceX has solved it, right? You use a powered descent and a powered landing and you've got a nice safe rocket that's ready to be used again. Marilia Tetone. I woke this question in my mind. The sun can light the earth, but the space where the sun is dark. And all stars should be light and not dark places. And I understand sun reflects the light and gases and atmosphere on earth reflects of the sun. Okay, but how do you explain the light of the moon? Specifically, when it is the full moon lights the night. Where does that light come from? Because the moon doesn't emanate the light. So, if this question looks stupid, but I'm trying to understand how it works. The moon is illuminated by the sun. And when you see the moon, you're seeing a reflection of the sunlight. And one of the cool things about the moon, like when you can, sometimes you can see the moon during the day, and if you look at the shadow that's on the moon, it's exactly pointing where the sun is in the solar system. And so next time you see the, the moon up in the sky, and you can see sort of like it's a little thin crescent, that means the sun is mostly sort of in the other direction from where you're seeing that shadow on the moon. And then other times you're going to see a mostly full moon, which means that the sun is behind you, although it's nighttime. So you can use the moon to tell you kind of where the sun is, but it's just reflected light from the sun. And the only time when you don't get that reflected light is when the moon passes into the shadow of the earth. And that's when you get a lunar eclipse. And in fact, there's going to be a great lunar eclipse at the end of July that's going to be visible from, it's going to be visible to people in Europe and Asia and Africa. So, and not us here in North America or South America. So good luck if you can get a chance to see the lunar eclipse. Go green. What effort power is required to leave the moon's gravity? Could an athlete jump off the moon? How about using a trampoline or a mechanical aid would be required? No, you couldn't jump off the moon. The escape velocity of the moon is about 2.38 kilometers per second, which means that you would need to be going 2.38 kilometers every second to be able to jump off the moon. And just to give you an idea, that is faster than pretty much the fastest gun can shoot here on Earth. So unless you can jump faster than a bullet, uh, you're not going to be able to jump off of the moon, uh, even with the trampoline. But one of the cool things is that for smaller objects, you kind of could. Um, the escape velocity from, say, 67P, which was that comet that um, that the Rosetta mission went to is about walking speed. So if you can jump faster than about walking speed, you could escape 
completely off of that comet. And then anything that's smaller than that, you could, jump, you could jump off of it. And this is going to be a big problem in the future when we do asteroid mining and things like that because the gravity of these objects is so low that it's actually really easy to you know, use a drill and you send yourself into, you know, on an escape trajectory and you can't get back to the asteroids. So not a problem for the moon, but definitely a problem for asteroids, comets, things like that. Desert Rat NT. How does the Hubble Space Telescope take such in-depth photos when it's in low Earth orbit? Does it focus on one spot and every orbit of the Earth goes? Does it focus on the same spot until it gets a full exposure time? That famous 10,000 galaxy photo must have had a lengthy exposure. The Hubble Space Telescope can point itself in different directions. And so what it, they'll do is they will point it, you know, astronomers book time on the Hubble Space Telescope and they sort of say what objects they want to point it at. And then people at, who work with Hubble will queue up all of these observation times and try to sort of sort things out so that Hubble is kind of close to where it's looking at or figure out what the priority is. It's kind of like triage at a, at a, uh, at a clinic, right? Um, and so with the deep field that you're talking about, Hubble was able to look at that one part of the sky for 22 days. And it did that over the course of 50 entire days of observation. So about half of the time that it was uh, performing this observing run, it was looking at that one target. And then the rest of the time, it was looking at different targets. And you know, they would choose a target that would, where the Earth wouldn't get in the way as much as they could. But still, there'd be situations where they would have to shift it away and point a different target for priorities and things like that. So Hubble is capable of pointing at individual targets for incredibly long periods of time to make some of these really in-depth observations. And this is one of the things, you know, when we think about, we see those beautiful nebulae and, and galaxies and things like that. Imagine if you could look up in the sky and you could gather every single photon and hang on to them for 22 days, just nonstop. That's crazy. Anyway, I'd like to thank uh, Massimo Okist who jumped in and, and helped answer that question uh, in the comments and uh, we expanded it here. Suresh R. Correct me if I'm wrong, we are moving towards an area in space called the Great Attractor. We can't see it since it's on the other side of the galaxy. And the rotational period of our galaxy is 250 million years, so theoretically, after 125 million years, we should be able to see clearly what's on the other side and find out what the Great Attractor is. Yeah, if you're willing to wait, uh, we can just wait for the Milky Way to turn and we can see what the Great Attractor is. Now, we don't have to wait that long, really, because the more that we turn, uh, we're going to get more and more of a view of the Great Attractor until you know, the, the Great Attractor is no longer in the zone of avoidance, which is the part right in the middle of the Milky Way that astronomers weren't, didn't used to be able to see through with their telescopes. Now, astronomers can today because they use different wavelengths. So they can use infrared and they can use radio waves, and those wavelengths can go right through the core of the Milky Way and they can see what's on the other side. So they know what the Great Attractor is. It is a supercluster of galaxies, and the name for it is called the, the Zela supercluster, and it is a region that's essentially more dense than other parts of the universe, and so its gravity is sort of pulling these galaxies into into that region. Galaxies are kind of sliding towards this more dense gravitational region than other parts. But there's nothing sort of fancy or mysterious about it. It's a lot of galaxies that happen to be on the other side of the Milky Way. Dakota is great. 
How do people find out how high and fast you need to send things to keep them in a stable orbit around either the Earth or the Moon? Surely to calculate that, you need to know how much gravity the Earth Moon make, so you'd need to know pretty much their exact mass. I don't know how you could do it other than trial and error. There is a great cheat that if you want to figure out the orbits, it's called Newton's Law of Universal Gravitation. And Newton figured this out hundreds of years ago that if you can know the time it takes for things to orbit around each other and how far apart they are, you can calculate the mass of the objects that are, that are involved in this, in this orbit. And so one of the things that, that astronomers often, if they're trying to figure out the mass of an object, they first want to figure out the rotation rates, the orbital speeds of various things, and that lets them calculate the mass of them. And so it's actually a fairly simple calculation. You'll learn this in high school. You'll be given sample numbers to fill in, and you can calculate the orbital velocities of various objects in the solar system. And so it's the same technique. Astronomers at NASA and places like that use the same technique. They calculate the orbital velocities based on you know, the masses that have been figured out by the orbital velocities and can use that to calculate any orbit around anything in the solar system and even out in the universe. They can see they can look at a distant galaxy, calculate how fast things are orbiting around that galaxy, and figure out what the mass of that galaxy is. So Newton had figured this out hundreds of years ago, and it's been paying dividends for years. Capital H. Okay, so no gravity lens telescopes for humanity anytime soon. But it makes me think there are some wide binary systems out there lucky enough to have one star just far enough away for some of their orbit from the other to be within reach for a civilization at our level of development. Maybe many as there are many multi-star systems. So with one star, are we the suckers of the galaxy forced to make our space lenses from scratch? This is an awesome question, and I did a bunch of research when I sort of looked at it, and you are exactly right. So for example, if you wanted to use, we've had about this conversation in the past, that if you wanted to use uh, the sun as a gravitational lens, you could get about 500 astronomical units from the sun, but you wouldn't be able to see it because the sun would be in the way. So if you went up to about 1,000 astronomical units from the sun, the sun would be this really powerful telescope. You would block out the light from the sun. You'd get this Einstein ring around the sun, and you would be able to use that as a really powerful telescope. Now, 1,000 astronomical units, there are binary star systems that are at that exact point. And we know that binary star systems at that distance apart can have planetary systems around them. So there, like we happen to have solar eclipses where the moon and the sun happen to be the same size in the sky, there will be other star systems where people on one star will be at the perfect distance where the other star will be this super powerful natural telescope all the time. And all they have to do is just point their telescope at this other star and block the light from the star and see the Einstein ring around it and, and watch to see what happens. But the reality is, is that astronomers do this all the time. They use, galaxy, they use galaxies as natural telescopes and they use stars as natural telescopes and they just wait for these chance encounters all the time. And they are happening all the time, these microlensing events and amateur astronomers, because this mic microlensing event is so powerful, even amateur astronomers can help find planets all on their own with a fairly small telescope. So if this concept fascinates you, you know, don't wait for the big telescopes to be built a thousand years from now Get involved in gravitational microlensing today. You can totally volunteer. Vidididid. 
I've always wondered if Dyson spheres are really practical. If some civilization became advanced enough to develop devices that can effectively harness their star's power, is it possible to have that much material available to cover an entire star? I'm not sure, but it might require an Earth-sized planet to be mined and used as the sphere. That would really mess up the gravitational equilibrium of the star system, wouldn't it? Sounds almost impossible to me to build such a thing. All right, so a couple of things about Dyson spheres. One, if you dismantled every planet in the solar system, you could build a Dyson sphere with a width, a thickness of about 20 centimeters. So you could absolutely dismantle the entire solar system and you could build a shell around the sun at a distance of one astronomical unit. I wouldn't say no problem because it would be incredibly difficult and it wouldn't be stable and we don't have a material that could be that strong. So the way, so the point is that you wouldn't build a sphere. And the concept of a Dyson sphere is really a misnomer. What you do is you build a Dyson swarm. So you build one satellite, just one solar collecting satellite, or maybe it's a space station at the distance from the sun, and it collects the photons and it just exists. And then you build a second one, then you build a third one, and then you build a billionth one. And they are all buzzing around the sun in their own separate orbits, they're not crashing into each other, you can sort of work out orbits for them to be in where they don't interact with each other. And slowly over time, some advanced civilization is gonna block out bit after bit after bit of the light from their star until none is getting out. Every photon that's coming out of that sun is collected by one of these satellites that's zipping around the star. The other thing is that as you dismantled planets, you'd actually make the solar system more stable, right? The planet Jupiter is, is the bully of the, star system, uh, the solar system and would love to kick a planet out into deep space. Without Jupiter, everything would be a lot more stable. Without Saturn, everything would be even more stable. So as you dismantled and removed the planets one by one, everything would just settle out and it would be a nice, stable solar system until the sun died five billion years from now. Scott Rick. Are there any, and if so, can you post pictures of the reflectors we've left on the moon? No problem, I'm sure Chad posted a picture of the reflectors on the moon when I read out your question, so there they are. Uh, these are reflectors that were put on the moon by the Apollo astronauts, and they're there to allow scientists on Earth to be able to study the exact distance to the moon. And so what they do is they have these reflectors, they have prisms inside of them that when light goes in, it bounces twice and then comes back out in precisely the same direction that it went in, and so astronomers will fire a laser at the moon, at the, these retroreflectors. The light will go in, bounce, come right back, and they can measure the time it takes for, the, for the, the light pulses to go from the Earth to the moon and then from the moon back to the Earth. And a thing that's very interesting is that actually the, the light from the reflectors is getting a little dimmer than when the astronauts first put it on the moon. And they think that that's because they're getting kind of bombarded and chipped away at micrometeorites and they're kind of getting weathered. And they can actually, the, these experiments are so sensitive that they can detect the weathering on these retroreflectors on the moon, which is pretty cool. So, Hassan Maher. How could the Earth survive a collision with Thea planet 4.5 billion years ago, forming the moon from the remaining debris? Define survive, right? Um, you know, you had this planet that had a little bit less than the mass of the Earth. You had a planet that had the mass of Mars, which is about a third of the mass of the Earth. It smashed into the Earth and turned the entire Earth into molten rock and sprayed out debris into space that turned into the moon. And then the Earth coalesced and cooled down and solidified again 
and eventually water was able to form on the surface of the of the earth and we have the planet that we see today so so it didn't get completely torn apart but it definitely had a bad day all right those are your questions as always i really enjoy doing this so please keep them coming shorter questions are best questions that i haven't answered are best uh, but go ahead if you're watching any video on my channel if a question pops into your brain just type it in i'll gather them up and i'll answer them here all right we'll see you next week